chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. You know, there, there's something, I mean, I, obviously, I've got an iPad, right? Some of you use electronic devices for your Bible, and, and that's fine. I mean, you, you could say this. People, oh, you should use a real Bible with real pages, and they turn them and stuff like that. And, and, and uh, I just want to let those who know who are, are kind of stuck on that, let me say this, that that's a modern invention. Our Bibles that we have that we think, oh, I mean, I bet you Jesus carried one like this, right? They're not. They were scrolls. None of us are carrying around scrolls, are we? None of us have the originals, so it's okay. I mean, and I, I'm an old school guy, so I've studied my Bible, and I like a paper Bible. I like that, right? And there's sometimes I'll use my electronic device, and that's okay. But one of the things you do, I do miss a little bit about um, that you don't get with, although you could probably get it with the electronic version, is when everybody turns their pages together, you can hear it. And to me, that's exciting. People are opening up their Bibles. So I'm sure there's some kind of app that when you go like this on your, your, your iPad, to go, whoosh. so get that, okay? So we can all get, whoosh. all right, just, just do that together, right? Uh, so however you get there, and if you want to even make the sound, you probably make me feel good, whoosh. all right? We get there and there. That's a pretty bad sound. So Jared, work on that, would you? Um, the Bible page-turning app, I don't know. But hey, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 and continuing this series and in Philippians, studying verse by verse through Philippians and, and uh, entitled the whole series, Finding Joy in Christ Alone. And, and the title of the message this morning is called Attitude Check. Attitude Check. And I want to read um, not only the verses we're going to cover this morning, but uh, drop back to the verses that we covered Last week, read those so we get them in context. So beginning in chapter 2, verse 12, through verse 16. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So as you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and the privilege we have to come um, and sit at your feet and to be taught by you through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we're asking uh, that you would uh, do just that. You would do as you promised, that you will open our hearts and our minds to not only be able to understand, but to be able to apply your word so that you might be honored. So, Lord, we, we, we just pray you do a great work. Lord, there's people here this morning that are hurting. And, Lord, you know that better even than they do. And, Lord, we pray that you would bring comfort through your word. You'd bring hope and healing. Uh, Lord, there's, there, there's those here who are maybe struggling with a specific, uh, particular sin that this, may, this passage may address. Lord, we pray that you bring conviction, but also, Lord, you bring hope and change. Lord, for all of us, Lord, I, th- this passage of Scripture will probably be convicting. And, Lord, I, I pray that when we leave here this morning, we would not be the same as a result of our time in your word and you using your word to make us more like your son. And we do pray this in his name, Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question here this morning. Um, have you ever seen bad attitudes in the workplace? Anybody ever seen that? Just maybe lift your hand. Only a couple people. Great. Okay. Well, got the rest of you. Okay. Let, let me ask you this question. Have you ever had a bad attitude in the workplace? Okay. We've got a couple honest people. We've got a few honest people. There we go. Yeah, I've had a bad attitude in the workplace. Um, studies show that 
bad attitudes in the workplace lead to poor performance, so they don't produce nearly as much as they could if they had a better attitude. And it also leads to unhappy customers when there's a bad attitude in the workplace. I've seen this happen in, in workplace, maybe a restaurant or something like that. There's bad attitudes being treated employees, and you just don't have a good... I mean, this happened one time at Chick-fil-A. And I mean, I was just like shocked. My pleasure. What happened? You know, and, and, and they're bickering back there right in front of everybody. I'm thinking, you know, and when that happens, guess what happens? Sales go down, right? You lose money. I mean, bad attitudes in the workplace are never good for anyone. For the people with the bad attitudes, for the other people being affected by the bad attitudes, for those who may be being served by the people with the bad attitudes. Bad attitudes spread like an aggressive cancer affecting every cell in the body. I remember my senior year in college, uh, we lost our second game of the season, 17 to 14, to a team there's no way we should have lost to. We had just put in a brand new offense that year. It was supposed to be high-powered offense. In the first game, we played a cupcake, and we blew them out. The next game, they were a little tougher, but we, should, we played a lot tougher guys later than this team. This team beat us 17 to 14. And after that game, there began to be some bickering. There began to be some finger pointing. Hey, we lost because of this. We lost because of this. And we had some guys show, uh, complaining about playing time. We had guys not giving every 100% in practice. This happened the first couple of days of practice. And, and by the grace of God, myself and the other co-captain of the team began to notice this. So we called a team meeting. And we said, and I, I said as one of the defensive guys, we only gave up 17 points and we lost. And that's what I heard. Well, we only gave up 17 points. And I said, we gave up 17 points. We should have given up zero. It's our fault we lost. And we pointed at the offense. And so me and this other guy named Craig, we just, we just called out all those guys that were beginning to point fingers. So either you stop pointing fingers and take accountability for yourself. Self, and if, if you can't do that, just leave the team now. Just go into coach and tell him you don't want your scholarship anymore because we don't want you on the team. Well, that kind of stuff stopped pretty quickly. All right. Then the guys complained about the playing time. They come into my room and in our, in, our, in our dorm, all the athletes, all the football players were on the, the third floor of this big dorm at my college. And they came in and complained, well, I ought to be playing more. And, and why am I not playing anymore? And I said, well, why are you talking to me? What can I do about that? Why are you going to talk to the guy down the hall? Why are you going to talk to other guys down here in the corner about your playing time? What can they do about that? Nothing. Yeah, go talk to coach. He's the only one who decides who gets to play around here. No more of that. So we told everybody on the team, if somebody comes and complains to you about playing time, don't listen to him. Tell him, talk to the hand. Go talk to the coach. He's the guy who can do something about it. It kind of complaining just, so we stopped that right there. And those guys that were going halfway in practice, we called them out publicly in practice. I remember just one of the scout team guys, and the scout team guys are usually younger guys who aren't starting, but they give you a look. They're basically running the other team's offense. I play defense, and so they're supposed to run the other, and simulate the other team's offense. But the only way we're going to be prepared for Sunday or Saturday is that they're going 100%. They're not going halfway. It doesn't help me at all. If I'm coming on the outside, you don't understand this, on a blitz to get to the quarterback, and the offensive tackle goes halfway, how's that help me? How's that help our team? So I just called this kid out. You're not going full speed. You're going halfway. And we talked about that earlier. If you're going to go halfway, then just leave now. Leave the practice. All in front of everybody. You're like, man, that's pretty harsh, Brian. No, it wasn't. Because that was going to kill our team. This bad attitude was destroying our team. And I'll tell you what, in a week's time, things changed. At halftime of the next game, we were down 17-14. And it began to come back a little bit halfway through in the halftime. And we called, no way, this is not going to happen. 
We won 35-17 and went 9-1 and the rest of the year because we turned the attitude around. We wouldn't let a bad attitude kill our team, kill everything we had worked for. And that's what you have to do sometimes. You've got to root it out. You've got to call it what it is, right? A bad attitude. And um, the consequences of a bad attitude can have devastating effects in businesses, on teams, in communities, in families. We've probably all seen this happen. What happens to bad attitudes? They just have devastating effects. And more importantly, bad attitudes can have devastating effects in the church. And that's serious business. Bad attitudes in the church can destroy the church. And that's what God through Paul will address in our passage this morning. All of us here at one time or another, maybe even now, have had a bad attitude about something in our church. I'll raise my hand. And I guarantee that there's been something that hadn't gone well. And all of a sudden the attitude about something in our church has kind of gone downhill a little bit. All right? You're thinking, man, I wish I wouldn't have come this morning. Uh, I wish I wouldn't have had to preach this and hear this all week and study this throughout this week. And um, Monday, I uh, even listened to another guy I like to listen to on this passage. I'm like, man, I'm going to hate to preach this on Sunday. But th- th- this is, this, that is why it's so important, the fact that we all have attitudes, that we do regular attitude checks to see where our heart is, to see where our attitudes are. There's a guy named Steele Harmon. He worked for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes in, in Kentucky. And, and this time, of course, this has been back when I was in college, so it's been quite a few years ago, 27, 28 years ago or whatever, and, or maybe longer than that. I'm not sure. Don't, probably something like that. Um, 28 years. And he, that was my freshman year, I guess. But he, Steele, he would gather all these athletes from across the state of Kentucky to all, all these colleges. We'd come together and we'd do these things called Weekends of Champions. And we'd minister to youth and communities. And sometimes it'd be tough, and the kids are not always want to do what we wanted to do. And you have junior high kids there. That explains enough right there, right? So it, you just you have this struggle going on all the time. And, and, and we have training. When we would get there early, we have training. And, and Steele, and it seemed like Steele was like 80 years old then. He, he couldn't have been because... He'd be 108 right now, right? But it just seemed like he was, always, he was older, but he was so enthusiastic. He'd come in, he'd go, attitude check to all these college athletes. And the response, you all know where I'm going? You ever heard this? Attitude check. Nobody got it. Okay, this must be a Kentucky thing, all right? It's in the Holy Land. I'm going to bring you into the Holy of Holies now, okay? But you could go attitude check, and we all are supposed to go, praise the Lord. And he'd just pull this out in the middle of, the, during the weekend. We'd been in the middle of something. He'd go attitude check. And we were supposed to respond with praise the Lord. And what Steele was trying to teach us is that we were there to serve with the right heart, the right attitude, no matter the circumstances going around us, no matter if we had the small group of junior high boys who never wanted to listen to anything and make funny noises, no matter what that was like, he was saying, you've got to have the attitude, hey, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We're here to serve. He was trying to teach us something. And I guarantee you, you go to anybody who served in those, thing, those, those Weekend of Champions for four or five years during that time that Steele was leading those, if you walked in and said attitude check, they'd know what to say. Now their attitude may not come along, they come along with that, but they knew what they were being, that, that Steele was trying to teach us to have a great attitude in the midst of serving the Lord. So let, let's practice, all right? Now you'll know. You bring in the holy holies. The, all right, here we go. Um, here we go. Attitude check. Praise the Lord. Let's try it again. Attitude check. Praise the Lord. Well, good. That's pretty good. I like that. This is the response the Lord wants us to have when we serve him. Is praise the Lord, no matter what the circumstance is. So this morning, based on God's word to us, we're going to have an attitude check. And you've probably heard this too. Attitudes are contagious. Is yours worth catching? Attitudes are contagious. Is yours worth catching? 
All right, with this in mind, let's look now at verses 14 through 16. And we're going to examine these three verses. And we do this this morning. We'll be challenged by two directives to follow so their attitude will glorify God. Now, let's begin with verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, this is one of those verses where you don't have to go, man, I wonder what the hidden meaning's there. I mean, you, you don't have to do that at all. I wonder what the Greek says there. You don't have to do that at all. It says that. Do nothing. Or do all, all things without grumbling or disputing. And it's in these words we find the first directive to follow. Watch your attitude. You ever heard that? Somebody say, now watch your attitude. Watch your attitude. That's what Paul's saying. Notice the first phrase there. Do all things. Some translations say do everything. To what is this referring? What is this all things or to everything? What, what is he talking about? Well, when he says all things, we're supposed to do all things. What are these all things we're to do? Well, remember that this verse falls under a section that began in chapter 1, verse 27, with this overarching imperative. Look there with me, verse 27 again. It says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So this was followed by Paul. After, after this, it follows, Paul follows this up with, with some pretty challenging ways in which we're to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, the, the, the top one, the most challenging one at least to me, was this attitude of selflessness. Putting others before ourselves. Verses 3 and 4. And he gives the example of how Jesus did that, verses 5 through 11. Just so we understand what he means by it, what it means to be selfless. And we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of God. One of those ways is to be selfless. And, and um, then last week we examined verses 12 through 13. And that, that's just an incredible call to be selfless. And then how in the world are we going to be selfless? Well, how does that work itself out? Well, verses 12 and 13, we a- answer this question, who is working? Or, or ask the question this way, who is working, God or me? And the answer was, yes. Who's working, God or me? Yes, both. Uh, you are at work because God is at work in you. That's the answer. Verses 12 and 13. We're able to put others before ourselves. To fear not in the midst of persecution. Because, yes, we are at work because God is at work in us. We work, we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Because of the power of God in us, working through us. So that is the all things that Paul is pointing to here in verse 14. Everything we do in conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, or everything we are working our salvation out. Because God's at work in us. All right? This is the all things. All those things that we are doing to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's the all things. So what is it that Paul commands these believers to do? With this all things. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Your translation may say complaining or arguing. Both, again, very good translations. Work out your salvation. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel without grumbling or disputing. Without complaining or arguing. arguing. Yes, the Lord through Paul wants these people to work out what he has worked in and is working in them. He wants that to happen. But he wants it to happen in a certain way. He wants them to watch their attitudes. The attitude in which we do all things is immensely important. 
Not just doing all things, but there's an attitude with which Paul calls us to do all things, to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Well, why would Paul bring this up? Why would he bring this up? I mean, just, why that? I mean, there's a lot of other things you could cover, and he covers a lot of other things. Why did he even bring this up? Well, obviously, Paul knew this is something with which they were struggling. He somehow knew this. Well, how in the world did he know this? How did he know that they were struggling with this attitude issue? Well, remember, this letter was sent to the, the church of Philippi by, or by, in the hands of a guy named Epaphroditus. And we're going to learn about him next week. I'm actually, just to let you know, I'm going to do verses 17 through 30 next week. Ooh, yeah. Okay. Two last week, three this week, 14 next week. All right, we're jumping out there. But we're going to learn about him next week. But let me just remind you, we talked about this early on. Epaphroditus was sent to Paul with a gift from the church of Philippi to, to minister to his needs as he was in prison, house arrest in Rome. And, and so Epaphroditus brought this gift. So I can just imagine how this... And then when he sent Epaphroditus back, he sent him with this letter. Right? So I can just imagine Epaphroditus coming in and he sees Paul and they probably embrace. Because remember, Paul had already been there... Um, to visit them three times before he was put in prison. He loved these people. He knew these people. I guarantee he knew Epaphroditus. And they embraced. And, and Paul said, hey, Epaphroditus, man, how are things going in the church there at Philippi? I mean, just can't wait to hear. And Epaphroditus said, oh, man, things are going. I mean, the numbers are up. We've got visitors. Our life groups and the participation is unbelievable. We've got a new background in the sanctuary. I mean, it is going great, Paul. I mean, I couldn't tell you how good it's going. And, and, and um, Paul responds, well, hey, that's great. But how's it really going? Epaphroditus. I don't really know how it's really going. And Epaphroditus pauses and he says, well, Paul, we're doing a lot of good things. I mean, we're seeing some great things happen. We really are. We're seeing people come to Christ and seeing people grow. But, but there just seems to be this attitude in, in the body that's kind of spreading. Just this, this attitude of complaining and grumbling and arguing with each other and disputing that, that, that's, that's going on all over the place and I, I, don't, I don't know what to do about it Paul so that's really what's going on now that may not exactly the words they exchanged but somehow that was communicated I believe from Epaphroditus to Paul how would he have known that this is something we're struggling with without being communicated firsthand by a guy who had been in it alright so and because Paul loves these people we've seen that in the first chapter I mean, he loves these people he has to say something he can't let this cancer spread through the body in Philippi. He loves him enough to say something. So what does it mean to grumble or dispute? Where the word grumbling is a negative response to a disappointment arising from self-centered attitude that will manifest itself verbally. Now look at this. It's a negative response to disappointing disappointment arising from a self-centered attitude What's he just been talking about? Selflessness, not self-centeredness, right? It rises from a self-centered attitude. It's about me. There's a negative response. It doesn't go my way, so I'm going to get a bad attitude about it. That's what grumbling is. And, 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 it, it, it's, and then it manifests itself verbally. And you could, your translation say complaining. That's exactly what it is. It's complaining. And, and this verbal grum, grumbling usually begins behind the scene among the few, amongst a few people. It just kind of starts over here and it's just a real dull little grumble. And then more people get involved, and the grumble gets a little louder. And all of a sudden, the grumble becomes an out-and-out public rebellion, a complaint, a grumbling that everyone can hear. 
this verbal grumbling usually um, doesn't end well for the body of Christ. Disputing, the other word here, means to, to question or to doubt, which leads to arguing. Uh, this kind of attitude, this kind of attitude is one who would dispute everything. So I could say to someone that's just got this kind of attitude, this disputing, arguing, this stool on the legs is white. No, it's not, it's beige. Well, I mean, it's not, it's not exactly. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's white. It's beige. You've got to get the color right. Or they could look there at, 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 um, over here at David's shirt. I can say, hey, that shirt's blue. It's turquoise. Oh, You've got to be kidding me. All right? And that's the kind of attitude. You ever met someone like that? Or better yet, have you ever been like that? I mean, you just can dispute anything anyone says. And that's, this, 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 this is the attitude that was creeping in somehow at the church of Philippi. So based on the fact that Paul will quote later here from Deuteronomy 32.5 in the next phrase, I believe that what Paul has in mind here for, for an example of grumbling and disputing is the nation of Israel. So what is grumbling and disputing? And, and, and Paul, in, as you look at this as a whole, is calling to look back at the nation of Israel. When you read about them, it seems that's all they do. Who's ever read through, you know, you look, you're reading through the nation of Israel, they're, they're in captivity all the way through getting the promise. And who's ever read that part of section of scripture? Probably most of us, or you at least heard about it. And, and be honest, you're reading through there and they're starting to grumble. I'd never do that. I mean, that's all those people do. And we, we get on. Can you believe that? I mean, they just whine all the time. For example, they complain about the water at Mara, right? It's bitter. Well, at least it's water. But they're complaining. They hadn't had anything to drink for three days, and they, they, they're complaining what the water tastes like. It must be like Richwood water or something. I don't know. <laughs> Some of our kids don't like the taste of Richwood water. So um, they, they complain about a supposed lack of food. I mean, God is providing for them like crazy. They're enough food. The ten spies go in, right? Twelve spies go in. Ten of them come back and say, oh, we can't take the land. The ites are there. They're great big guys. I mean, we can't take the land. They're just complaining about having to even think about going to take the land. And then the people respond when they hear you come back with this. And this is much more complaints about that. They respond to this news about the land and this complaining from the ten with Numbers 14.2. It says, all the sons of Israel grumbled, here's the word, against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness. Are you going to be kidding me? God just made this amazing deliverance of them, provided from them miraculously time after time, and they're grumbling, complaining. Their grumbling and complaining began small, and it got bigger and bigger. It manifested itself against each other, against the leadership, but ultimately it was directed at God. Asaph, when he was writing one of the psalms he wrote, um, reflecting on, sadly writes, reflecting on the grumbling of the Israelites, this in Psalm 78, 40 through 41, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again, they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. You see, grumbling and disputing ultimately shows a lack of trust in the goodness and the sovereignty of God. Uh, let me say it another way. In fact, our grumbling disputing is an attack on the goodness and the sovereignty of God. Think about that. Every time we grumble, every time we complain, 
every time we have this attitude, they're going to call it black, I'll call it blue. Every time that kind of attitude is increased in, it is an attack on the goodness and the sovereignty of God. It shows when we do this, it shows when we grumble and complain. It shows we don't really believe Romans 8, 28. We don't believe that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We, we don't believe, we can say we believe it, but if we grumble and complain, we don't believe it. We really don't. It's lip service, and I'm talking to me. You think, man, call it easy. That's just the truth, isn't it? It's the truth. When we grumble, complain, we attack the goodness and the sovereignty of God. And this grumbling or disputing was more likely showing up in the sorts of ways in the church of Philippi. It was, it was showing up in all sorts of ways. Complaints about other members. Complaints about what they had, what they didn't have. Complaints about the leaders. We know we saw that against Moses and Aaron. It showed up in all kinds of ways. And this grumbling or disputing can happen right here this morning. And if we're all honest, it's happened here at Grace. Let's be honest. It's happened here at Grace. And maybe it's even happening right now. That music, it's just too loud. I mean, I wish they'd send the old hymns. Okay, which ones? The ones that are 100 years old or 1,000 years old? The preacher's preach is too long. I mean, the elders, we don't even want to talk about them. I mean, the building, can you believe the building we have? I mean, half the time the air conditioner doesn't even keep up with the heat outside. Unbelievable. I mean, it's awful. And we could go on and on, couldn't we? And there's a lot more that happens. I mean, the children's ministry, can they not keep up with our kids or what? What is wrong with that? I went back there and my, my, my kid had a wet diaper. You're kidding me. Yeah, they probably had a wet diaper. It means you probably, they probably drank too much that morning. I mean, what, I mean, we can find something, right? And we can just let it go. And it just, just starts spreading. I'm not saying that's been the general attitude of the people here at Grace. But it can happen, can't it? It sure can. And we can all participate in that. And Paul exhorts the believers then and all of us to do this. To do all things without grumbling or disputing. Work out your salvation. Conduct yourselves in a manner the worthy of the gospel without grumbling or disputing. Now, why does he do this? Why is it? I mean, that's pretty strong. And I may be going light compared to how Paul was, what he was talking to. I don't even know exactly all that was going on in the church of Philippi. But it's a pretty strong, it's an imperative. It's a command. It's not a suggestion by Paul. Why does he do this? Why is this so important? Well, he answers it in verses 15 through 16. Look there with me. So that... You will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to, be, to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. It's in these words that we see the second directive to follow. Not only, not only are you to watch your attitude, but you're to secondly watch the results of your good attitude. Watch the results of your good attitude. Paul exhorts, do, not, do, not, do all things without grumbling or disputing because of the results it produces. The word so that here, the verse begins with so that, point to the results of a good attitude, one without grumbling and complaining. It's the, the, the results they produce. Paul explains when he writes, explains this when he writes, you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Notice the word blameless. It means free from accusation. doesn't mean perfection. 
but free from accusation. It's used when, when Zachariah, when Zach, uh, it's, it's used of speaking of Zacharias and Elizabeth, who were John the Baptist's parents. Look what it says about them in, in Luke 1, 6. They were both righteous in the sight of God, listen, it's walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Again, it doesn't mean perfection in their behavior, but an overall direction that their lives could be explained by obedience. When you looked at Zacharias, when you looked at his wife Elizabeth, overall, they were following after the Lord with all their heart. They weren't sinless, but, but they were. That's the word, this word blameless. They were following after the commandments of God. And people would look at their life, and they'd generally say, yeah, they, they really love the Lord. You could not accuse them of ignoring the commandments of God. Uh, now look at the word in verse 15, innocent. Some of your translations say pure. It, it means undiluted wine. A lot of times to, uh, uh, to make the wine last a little bit longer, when you go to the, to the wedding at Cana in John, we talked about this a little bit, they would water down the wine, and it would just make it last a little bit longer. And this was a word used, pure uh, um, or innocent, it was undiluted wine, also unalloyed metal. So you didn't have impurities in the metal. Um, one of the best illustrations I ever heard about this word that's used other places in the, in the New Testament was an onion. And you're thinking, an onion? I thought about bringing one and cutting one open, but I wouldn't be able to handle it because I don't like onions, all right? So I'm just going to tell you, and you know what I'm talking about. You cut an onion open, right? And you go through the layers of an onion, you peel it apart. What do you see? The same thing all the way through. It's not like an apple. You had a core in an apple, right? It's like a peach. You got this big pit in there. You get to the, 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 the bottom layer of the onion. It's the same as the one that was on the top, except for the goofy stuff on whatever that is on top, the, the skin. But the onion is the same all the way through. And, and Paul, in a sense, is saying, be an onion. Be the same all the way through. It, it, also, it's going to be integrity. Everything's together. It's the same. What you see is what you get. That's what this word means. Innocent or pure. Notice now with me in verse, the words of verse 15. Then he goes, it says, above reproach. Your translation may say without fault, false, faultless, without blemish. It's using the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, numerous times in reference to sacrificial animals. This word was used. Unblemished. That's what he said, without blemish, uh, above reproach. And, and the, the, all these words, these three words describe a life that it, it has an overarching direction of integrity, of sincerity, of truthfulness, of goodness, of humility, and, and generally living out the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the kind of life that he's describing by using these words. Notice what it proves or shows uh, to be true with, with also with the words children of God. So this explains the kind of life that, that the person is living. That if there's no grumbling or, dis, uh, or disputing or grumbling or complaining or arguing, it, it, it proves and shows forth something. It, it, it shows forth that they'll be children of God, that they are children of God. Now let me be clear here. The life that, like this, of blameless and pure and above reproach does not make someone a child of God. Doesn't make someone a child of God. It 
proves or shows forth that they are a child of God. Because we know from the Word of God clear that someone is made a child of God through faith and that it's a rebirth in their life. And we see this in two verses in chapter 1 of John. Uh, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So to become children of God through faith, through belief, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So we're children of God by faith and spiritual birth. That, that's the children of God part. That's how we're made children of God. But we show that we're children of God, and that's what he's talking about here. We prove to be children of God through lives that can be explained by blameless, pure, above reproach. Lives that look like an onion. From the outside to the core. Now notice the environment in which we live and show forth that we're children of God with the words in verse 15. They're in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Some translations say twisted and depraved. This is actually a quote from Deuteronomy 32.5 in reference to the nation of Israel and how they rebelled against the Lord. So that's why I believe that he's thinking about this, this attitude of grumbling about the nation of Israel. Because now he's quoting from Deuteronomy 32.5 and he's saying that they were a crooked and perverse generation. And, and, and the word crooked or is a word, uh, it, the Greek word is scolios. We get the word scoliosis from this. And it's a deviation from the standard of the line. Scoliosis, the, the spine does this, right? Can do all kinds of things. And this is, the, this is the picture. That there's a standard. And to, to deviate that is to be crooked. And was the nation of Israel crooked? You bet. They, were they holding up the standard that God had set for them? No way. And the other word really goes hand in hand. Perverse or perverted or depraved. It's an act. Actually, it's even more active. It goes hand in hand with crooked. It's an act of pursuing to deviate from the standard. So you can say they deviated from the standard. So they're crooked. They pursued to deviate from the standard. They're perverse. They pervert something that's good. And this is also how Paul described the generation in which he lived in Acts 2, verse 40. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And we'd all agree that this is true of our generation too, isn't it? It's crooked and perverse. When we, as children of God, live lives that are blameless and innocent, above reproach, Paul says, what he says, that we appear as lights. What it says there in verse 15, we appear as lights in the world, in a perverse and crooked generation. We stand out. And this is what Jesus exhorted the disciples to do when he said in Matthew 5, this actually should say Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden. So he says, you're the light of the world. Nor does any light... Anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket on the lampstand and gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is exactly what Jesus called them to do. It's to be lights in the world. In, in, a, in a difficult world. We also see Paul exhort the, the church at Ephesus in the same way. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. And in order to be lights in the world, our lives must be different than that of the world. 
What is the world characterized by? Grumbling and disputing. That's what the world does. That's exactly what the world does. Always complaining. And I'm just going to throw this out here. And this is not any kind of condemnation. So like that. I told you this before. I can't do it because I get caught up into it. But there's a couple radio channels on, on radio stations on AM. And that's all they do. It's all they do. Complain. And I even agree with some of the things they're saying. Some of the talk show hosts. But that's all they do is whine and complain. And I know if I, in my own heart, if I'm going to listen to that, I'm, yeah, oh yeah, brother, preach it. It's stupid president. Can you believe that? Can you believe those liberals? You hear me? That's all they do is whine. Do something about it. Quit complaining and do something about it. Pray for them. You ever hear them pray for them? I can't let, because I'll do it too. I'm, 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 I'll just do it too. I can't listen to the junk. And if they're going to call themselves Christian, then my buddy Steve Mazza, who's, who graduated from college, and I was in college, I was a freshman, he had graduated, he played football at University of Kentucky, we're walking to the first game my freshman year, because I wasn't dressing out, obviously. We're walking to the first game, and this guy comes up to Steve. And he said, hey, Steve Mazza, remember me, man? We used to hang out when we were freshmen, sophomores in college. He said, man, I mean, we got, we got a party going on tonight. It's going to be girls, it's going to be drugs, it's going to be alcohol, man. Why don't you come, let's hang out and just have a good time. And, and Steve goes, well, I don't do those things anymore. I'm a Christian. He goes, well, I'm a Christian too, man. There's nothing wrong with that. And Steve, and he was still pretty big. He was still pretty, pretty good size. He goes, he looked him right in the eye. He says, don't you ever call yourself a Christian if you're going to do those kind of things. We need more of that. We, we need more of just calling Christians to account, right? And, and, and acting like Christians and not being part of the world. And the whole issue here is if we're going to shine as lights, if Paul's saying if you're going to shine as lights, Church of Philippi, you've got to be different from the world. Grumming, complaining can't be a part of the body of Christ. It's not the natural thing for a child of God to do. It's an unnatural thing. Not natural. I better keep going. We're being characterized by attitudes that are grateful, that are thankful, that are joyful, that are complimentary of other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the kind of attitudes that the children of God should have. Lights not only allow people to see, listen to this, but they give direction. And if we're talking about the nation of Israel here, was there a light that gave them direction during the night? You bet there was. The glory of God in a fire by night, and he led them. Now here's the question. Where is our light leading people? Where is our light leading people? Is it leading to Jesus? Because it's so different than the world. I mean, if we turned all the lights, and it can get pretty dark in here, turned off all the lights in here, and lit one match, it would dispel the darkness. You would be able to see, with one match, you would be able to see everybody in the room. It would brighten up enough that enough light would see everybody in the room. And so not, maybe not clearly, but you'd see them. And just that one little light. But just think about it. If we have the light of the world living in us and we're called to be the light of the world, what difference that can make. And that's what Paul is calling the Philippians to. That's what he's calling us to do. Now look at the, 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 the phrase there in verse 16. The first phrase is, holding fast the word of life. Uh, some translations say hold out or hold forth the word of life. Uh, and the question is, does this mean standing firm in the word of life? Or, or the, the word that brings life? Or does it mean sharing the word of life verbally? Yes. It's one of those, again, yes. It can mean both, even the structure of the words and the grammar. And I really studied this hard, trying to, you can't pull it apart. Yes. 
uh, it would be appropriate, and, and it's called for in, in other places in the New Testament, both of these, to stand firm, to hold fast to the word that brings life and has brought life into you, and to, to hold that forth, to, to tell others about that word of life, the life that brings, the word that brings life, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We live lives that are blameless, innocent, and above reproach as we hold fast to, as we trust in the word that brings life. It is Christ in us, working in us, that enables us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Isn't that good news? The word of life, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. John 1.18. What good news? And that word can dwell in us, not only the word of life, but the word of life can dwell in us, enable us to live so we can be witnesses in a crooked, perverse generation and bring people to him. And, and, and we see this. Um, Paul, Paul not only calls them uh, here to this, this standard of being a light, and, and, and the reason, what is the reason that we're to, to, to do all things without grumbling and complaining? Well, so that you can be a light to the world. So you can bring people to Christ. So they look and see, there's something different. That can only be explained by God. Yeah, that's, that's, one of the, that's the biggest reason. Watch what a good attitude can do, right? And the other reason here in verse 16, look at the end of verse 16. So that in the day of Christ I will have seen, I have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So, so what's Paul saying here? Well, it's not only for a witness, but it will bring joy to Paul. It will bring joy. joy. He, had, he had invested his life into the life of the Philippians. And their lives can be explained by joy and thankfulness and gratitude and their attitude is that way and they're working out their salvation they're, they're living their life in a manner worthy of the gospel and that, with that kind of attitude it'll bring joy to his heart when one day he stands before the judgment, the, the judgment seat of Christ for rewards right and he's not saying I want a reward he's just saying I'll, I'll have reason to, to glory to, to, to be thankful to, to have joy because you've worked it out you've lived it out John expresses this, in, in this same truth in a little bit different words in Third uh, John 4. He says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. And he says, I, John says, I, there's no greater joy to hear that you all are walking in the truth. And Paul's kind of saying the same thing. Man, there's no greater joy in my life to hear that you're not letting this spread like cancer in the body of Christ, but you're changing things and you're working out your salvation as Christ works in you with an attitude of gratitude. I just want to share something here with you. A pastor, a friend of mine, um, mentor in many ways, I respect him. Um, probably one of the top three men in this world that I respect. And it's impacted my life tremendously outside of my dad. Another guy named Bob Warren is a guy named Tommy Nelson, who many of you know. And Tommy sent me a, a letter, um, the 12th of May. Real short, Tommy's not one, he preaches long, but he's not one of a lot of words when you speak to him. He said, Brian Mack, what a blessing you are. I continually press on because of guys like you who are faithful to what they've learned and continue on. Thank you, Brian, Tommy. Now, that's pretty joyful for Tommy, if you know Tommy. He was expressing what John expressed. I have no greater have no greater 
joy than this, to hear that you're walking in truth. And that's what Tommy was expressing to me. Now, I saved that letter for a reason. Because it, it encouraged me, but it encouraged me that it encouraged Tommy. Because I think that much of him. And, and I can say this about you. I can say this about Grace Bible Church. Thankfully, this attitude hasn't destroyed our church. Is it there? Do we always be, have an attitude check? You bet. But I can say this. I can say with John the Apostle. I can say with Paul. I can say like Tommy kind of said to me. I have no greater joy than this to hear that you're walking the truth. When we walk in that way, we have that kind of attitude. And it brings me so much joy. And it brings you joy too, doesn't it? Well, I want to invite us all. You see if you have the back of the bulletin. Maybe you didn't. It may not be on. I think it should be on there. It says invitation. You see that on the back of your bulletin? If you have one that says invitation, it's because like introduction, exposition, invitation. You're like, well, invitation, we don't do like an invitation here. We do an invitation every week. I'm inviting you to respond to the word of God. That is the invitation, right? So here's how I'm going to invite you to respond to the word of God this morning. Is there something that you have had a bad attitude about? Is there something in the church that you've had a bad attitude about? The Lord would call you by his grace to stop complaining and disputing and replace that with joyfulness and thankfulness in his goodness and sovereignty in that thing. Trusting that he's allowed that in your life for some reason for your good to make you more like Jesus. So, so the first thing is to, 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 to put that aside, to put the, the grumbling and disputing aside and put on joyfulness and thankfulness. Secondly, have you verbalized your grumbling and disputing to others in the church? If so, then you need to go to them and ask them to forgive you for your bad attitude. Ooh. Yeah. I've had to do this before. I've had to go to people and ask them to forgive me. I've gone to the elders over the last, I've been here almost 12 years. There's been a couple times our elders, I've said, guys, forgive me. My attitude stinks in this area. Please forgive me. And there's been times they've done that with me too and other elders. And it needs to happen throughout the body of Christ. And we have that kind of attitude. And we've talked to you about it with somebody else. Now we've get, we've, we, it's begin to spread a little bit, right? Other people are getting, starting to hear it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, can you believe that? If you initiate that or you're involved in it, you need to go to the, those people and say, please forgive me of my bad attitude. I'm wrong. I'm so thankful for God's church. And I'm going to make a difference. Another question to consider. Have you verbalized your grumbling and disputing to others outside of our church? this happens you know at our church what would God call us to do there and you need to go to them and ask them to forgive you for your bad attitude why because it's a poor witness they're looking in and say what's so different about them and we do that at work we complain about everybody and whine about everything at work I mean they do that at the church why would I want to go there I'm, I want to go to church where that doesn't happen so if that's happened, if you've done that to any, what would God call you to? He'd call you to go to them. What a witness would that be? To go to them and say, man, please forgive me about my, I'm wrong. I'm thankful for my church. Is our church perfect? No way. As long as I'm the pastor, it won't be perfect. As long as you're here, it won't be perfect. But there's a lot of great things about our church, isn't there? Amen. Praise God. So we got it, but by God's grace, we want to root this out. We're going to root this kind of attitude out and be quick to root it out, right? Don't let it go. We go quickly with it, right? As Barney Fife would say, nip it in the bud. All right? Those are your Barney Fife fans. Let me ask you another question here or just make this statement. Attitude check. Attitude check. That's how he wants us to approach 
living in a manner worthy of the gospel so that others would see our good works and glorify the God and Father in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, this is not an easy text. It's not an easy t- text to, 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 it's easy text to understand, but it's not an easy text sometimes, Lord, to carry out. But Lord, you've given us the hope that you're working in us, both the will and the work for your good pleasure, to give us desire and the power to honor you in this area. Lord, change our attitudes if they're not good. Lord, help us do attitude checks all the time so that we make sure our attitudes are right and we're people who are thankful and grateful and joyful for all that you've done, all that you're doing, and thankful for even the difficult situations, the difficult people, the difficult circumstances, all those difficult things that come in our life. We're thankful for those even because, Lord, you've allowed them to come in our life to make us more like Jesus. So, Lord, help us have that kind of attitude as we live as lights in this crooked, perverse generation so that you might be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.